재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Time for International News Digest. We're going to get some analysis on some of the top news stories making headlines around the world. Uh, we have a pair of experts set to join us. Our first panelist, very pleased to have from Oxford University International Relations Professor Neil McFarlane. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Uh, we're going to talk about an issue that's perhaps a little bit out of the radar for most of our listeners. The landlocked mountainous region of Nagorno-Karabakh is the subject of, a, of an unresolved dispute between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Last week, the two nations agreed to a tentative ceasefire aimed at halting four days of fighting over this region. However, uh, exchange of fire across the contact line has now threatened this ceasefire. Before we get into some of the details, Professor, and just for the benefit of our listeners, can you just give us some background on this dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan over this region? Uh, Sure, thank you. Um, I suppose the deep background is that the entire region is ethnically very complex and people tend to be mixed up uh, territorially. Nagorno-Karabakh is a small uh, piece of land that was allocated by the Soviet Union to Azerbaijan in the 1920s, but its majority was Armenian. The Armenians in Karabakh were never terribly happy with being part of Azerbaijan. It didn't matter in the Soviet period because you couldn't express that. When independence was imminent, uh, things began to move. The conflict began in 1988 and lasted effectively until 1994. The Armenian minority, with help from Armenia itself, uh, won and basically uh, obtained control over the entire region of Karabakh plus much of the adjoining territory. There was a ceasefire in 1984, uh, 19, uh, sorry, <clears throat> in 1994, uh, and uh, it stayed pretty much the same until uh, recently when we had this incident, which was quite unlike anything mm. uh, uh, that had happened uh, prior to last week. The bottom line here, if I may, yes. uh, is that you have two competing principles. The Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh want national self-determination, either through recognized independence or unification with Armenia. The Azerbaijanis are pursuing the principle of territorial integrity. It was part the territory was part of Azerbaijan when uh, independence was achieved. It should stay that way. You mentioned briefly about how these recent developments have been somewhat different. Uh, the, the recent fighting, uh, can, can you go over that a little bit as to what's happened in recent weeks that is a little bit unusual? Sure. Well, uh, operationally, uh, there have been lots of more or less minor ceasefire violations over the past 20 or so years, just shooting across the line, the occasional mine laying, and so on and so forth. But it seemed rather spontaneous and uh, low-level. This one involved uh, armor, artillery, and air power in coordinated actions. Uh, That's a completely different level of conflict. I suppose there, one might ask, why now? Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not asking you questions. You're asking me questions. 
This is also interesting in the dynamics, I suppose, of a lot of people who who view these events um, and you see some of the major players and some of the movements here. This latest ceasefire uh, was... Uh, the result of Russian-mediated talks in Moscow. We know that this is somewhat uh, in Russia's sphere of influence. What is Russia's ultimate goal right now, in your view? Well, I think that the Russian policy towards the Karabakh conflict is part of a larger regional policy. The Russians uh, are seeking to maintain predominant influence in the Caucasus as a whole, uh, and uh, they are seeking to minimize um, the, uh, if you will, the involvement or engagement of outsiders in what they believe is their space. Mm. Um, so I, I think essentially uh, this is one of several conflicts that the Russians have uh, manipulated over time in order to. Uh, sustain leverage over local states so that they can basically keep their spot in the region. So then, in essence, what we witnessed in recent years in Crimea and what's going on in eastern Ukraine, also, I suppose, uh, the uh, uptick in military engagement within Syria, this is all part of this grand strategy of Russia, sort of protecting their sphere of influence and, I guess, uh, being a a major international player in various world affairs? Yeah, I think that uh, certainly with respect to Crimea, eastern Ukraine, uh, or for that matter, Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, Mm -hmm. and also Karabakh, these are all uh, means of sustaining uh, regional Uh, primacy in the former Soviet Union. Syria is a bit different in the sense, I think there, the the fundamental issue is uh, a claim to treatment as an equal in Mm. international relations as a whole. I think the Russians have had the view for a long time that we have effectively ignored them Uh, violated their rights as a great power, and the Syrian operation was an opportunity to make clear that you couldn't resolve things in the larger system without uh, consulting Russia and paying attention to what it believes are its legitimate interests. The peaceful resolution of this current conflict and the the fear here professor is that this could again escalate into something that we've seen in various parts of the world uh, and i suppose there's a lot of overshadowing going on with everyone focused on isis and what's happening in syria and iraq and now libya uh, is there a potential that this could turn into something very very serious and alarming to various people around the world I guess there are two things I would say about that. One is that although I I expect that this ceasefire will more or less hold uh, with occasional violations and so on, um, there is no evidence of movement towards a full resolution of the conflict. And that has to do with the fundamental contradiction between the aim of national self-determination on one side and the desire to retain territorial integrity on the other. 
you can't have both at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so somebody's got to give. There has to be a compromise. Neither side shows any willingness to make the compromises that might be necessary for a durable peace. As for escalation, um, could it become a major conflict? Uh, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, I think that the Russians have no incentive for this to blow. Uh, they have an incentive to keep it bubbling along or to uh, resolve it on their terms. Uh, Turkey, Russia, Turkey is close to Azerbaijan, and Turkey has a very difficult relationship right. with uh, uh, Armenia, and now a rather difficult relationship with Russia. But in terms of, uh, if you will, a regional power conflict between Russia and Turkey, both of these states have other fish to fry. Russia is deeply engaged in Ukraine. Uh, it's still engaged in Syria. Uh, Russia has an economic crisis of its own. Turkey, meanwhile, has a real problem with Syria. It has a problem with ISIS. Uh, I don't think that either has any particular incentive to move this to a uh, large confrontation. The thing that I worry about, really, is that what you have in Karabakh on the line of contact is a large concentration of military force, very limited monitoring and transparency, uh, and when you get people very close to each other and they're very well armed and they're profoundly hostile to each other, accidents can happen, and when they happen, they can escalate, and people might find themselves in a place, in a nasty place that none of them wanted to be in, but they just got there because something happened. Yeah, it's not completely analogous, but many of our listeners in Korea will see the situation with the DM, the DMZ and the uh, separated Koreas and this sort of uh, hair-trigger tension between the two sides and the heavily militarized border area. It's, uh, it's fascinating indeed. Professor McFarland, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, understand the situation there a bit better. It's a great pleasure. That was Professor Neil McFarlane from Oxford University. We have now on the line from Deakin University, international politics professor Damien Kingsbury. Hello. Good evening. Professor, thank you for joining us. Uh, what we want to do and hopefully get your insights on is the situation in Myanmar right now. Uh, the uh, iconic democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi uh, will become state councillor. This was a measure approved by the upper house. Uh, they had failed to overturn a, con a controversial constitutional clause that actually blocks her from personally leading the country. Uh, it's maybe a bit of a lesson in civics, but could you briefly describe the special state councillor position that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was given? I think that the special state councillor position will be one that's made up as as they go along. I don't think there's a job description that goes with this. And really what it says is that Suu Kyi is being given uh, quite lateral powers to exercise them as she sees fit, which of course means that she will not be the Prime Minister, but she will have extensive powers to uh, consult and to make determinations in particular areas. Of course, given her discussions with the Myanmar military over recent months, they will be uh, that those decisions will be through a consultative process, 
and I'm sure she will be wise enough not to do anything uh, too unilateral. But the position itself, I think, is is a broad-ranging one and one that's not being tightly uh, prescribed. So we still maybe... I guess, see some ambiguity in the actual details of uh, the position. Uh, as far as the politicians there are concerned, um, what were some of the factors uh, that led Parliament to create this, uh, decide to act, essentially just go this route and and uh, create a state councillor position for Aung San Suu Kyi? Look, uh, the, the situation was, of course, that Suu Kyi wanted to become Prime Minister, and she has been in discussion with the military for the past uh, three or four months about that possibility, about the Constitution being changed. Now, of course, with the military holding 25% of the seats in the legislature and there needing to be a 75% majority of the legislature voting to change the Constitution, which might have allowed her to become Prime Minister, uh, she needed to negotiate with the military. Now, apparently the military did say that they were prepared to allow her to become Prime Minister if the military was granted extra powers. Hmm. Given that the military already retains very considerable powers and extra powers would be an anti-democratic step, she decided not to go down that path. Uh, There has been a civilian, a very trusted civilian appointee as the Prime Minister. But she still requires, I think, recognition as a, if not the most significant leader in the country. And the creation of this special state councillor, I think, gives her that type of recognition. She also was granted a number of ministries um, of which, from which she stepped back. So within the space of a week, I think she was granted four ministries. Mm. And she has uh, now stepped back from those because this special state councillor position has been created. Having said that, I think she will retain the position of foreign minister because that gives her a seat on the the state security council or committee, and that is, in a functional sense, the country's uh, most important body because it's that which ultimately determines what the country and indeed what the government can and cannot do. As you point out with the military and some of these uh, negotiations that are taking place, uh, more than 60 students in Myanmar have been released as part of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's plan to free all political uh, prisoners. It seems like a positive step. and We know that uh, the whole world has been witnessing this long-running saga of political arrest, detentions in Myanmar. As far as uh, these um, agreements and negotiations that take place uh, between the armed forces, as you point out, they, they retain a minority in parliament, a significant minority. Uh, are any of those dynamics, in your view, kind of upset by this power-sharing agreement, or is this something that's deemed a, an acceptable compromise by both sides? Oh, look, the, the whole process is being constructed as an acceptable compromise. The civilian government knows that it needs... It, it certainly has a mandate, both domestically and internationally, to proceed with continued reform. But it needs to go carefully because the military still retains uh, a very significant influence, not just in the parliament, but in the National Security Committee which functionally has greater power than the parliament. So if the National Security Committee decides under the Constitution it can actually unilaterally seize control of the state, 
just uh, with the simple uh, stroke of the pen. It doesn't even need to stage a, a military coup as such. So it's still a very tenuous situation and one that does need some, some finessing. Having said that, uh, the release of the political prisoners is one of those steps, a graduated step, towards a normalisation of the situation in Myanmar. So we have seen um, uh, increasing moves towards uh, uh, the assertion of civilian authority and, if you like, the liberalisation of the state. But this hasn't happened uh, immediately. It mm -hmm. has been a staged process. And the military is being taken along and their consent is being sought for each of these steps so as to ensure that they don't feel too threatened and that there is not ultimately a, a backlash in the reform process. We need to keep in mind, of course, that political transitions are always delicate processes and they're not always guaranteed to succeed. Indeed, many transitions often founder on the rocks of, of uncertainty and, and I think Suu Kyi and her political partners are, are very aware that this is still a possibility and that they need to tread very carefully. This staged process uh, that you're describing, um, the, the dream of becoming a liberalised democracy, uh, what are some of the major challenges ahead, you feel? Well, the major challenge, of course, is the retention of the military in Parliament and uh, their effective power of veto over changes to the Constitution, part of which, which guarantees them a position in Parliament. Um, the fact that they appoint four of the key ministerial posts without consultation, and, of course, um, the military overwhelmingly dominates the National Security Committee, which, under the Constitution, can remove the government of the day at any time for any reason whatsoever. So these are very significant factors which will need to be addressed over time. But I think that if the current uh, government or government at the moment rushes into this too quickly, it could uh, frighten the military and mm. perhaps prompt it into a negative reaction. So it's really a case of gaining the confidence of the military step by step. Of course, one of the things that the country needs to address is its ongoing uh, rebellions by specific ethnic groups in the country, the, the Curran, the Kachin, uh, Shan groups and so on. There are a number of, of uh, hot military hotspots in the country um, where, where there's uh, large dissenting populations and military um, armed groups um, and, and they need to be, those, those conflicts need to be resolved. And, and the military in Myanmar will want to retain some degree of authority in the political process unless or until those conflicts are resolved right. because ultimately it's those conflicts which brought the military into power in the first place um, over 50 years ago. At the end of the day, how important is it that Aung San Suu Kyi ultimately does become the official head of state. I know it's a very different situation, but a lot of people feel that maybe it would be deemed a little not as complete if Nelson Mandela did not end up becoming the president of South Africa. Yeah, look, that's a, that's a good question. I think there's a, there's a couple of answers there, one of which is that uh, Myanmar has a parliamentary democracy, or parliament, sorry, a parliamentary form of government. It's not quite a mm. democracy yet. So the role of prime minister is not that of the president um, in, in some other republics. 
Uh, it's not like a chief executive position. Um, so if Suu Kyi is not the Prime Minister, it's not necessarily uh, a disaster. What's important is that there is a civilian government in place and that it operates on the basis, basis of cabinet solidarity, that is the ministers uh, can operate constructively together in common agreement. So that's the most important thing. The individual, of course, Suu Kyi is a, a charismatic and very well-known and popular individual, but ultimately this is not about an individual. It's about a shift in the systems of the country and the political processes that she personifies it it makes it easy to identify, but ultimately it's not about Suu Kyi. It's about the style and type of government that Myanmar has. Mm. I mean, obviously one day, uh, as with South Africa, one day the leader will depart the scene and the, and the country needs to be able to carry on uh, without them. So right. you need to build in, in place uh, structural institutional mechanisms which guarantee civilian authority and not rely on the charisma of mm. one individual. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Kingsbury, thank you so much for your time. appreciate it. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much.